Go. Sniper arrow on the guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter. Left flank. Right. One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Critical hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north. I notch two arrows. I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire. Both arrows hit. Cleave. You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got hold of them. For Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, The Dark Lord will kill you all. Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. The Fire and Water Podcast Network presents Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. I'm Siskoid, and today I'm bringing back Last episode's Daniel Putwellet to talk about the game I probably played more than any other. Uh, I don't just mean with him, I mean ever. The game I most homebrewed, for sure. We're talking about Artalsorian Games' Dream Park. And Dan, I think the question is, when am I going to do an episode on a game people know? <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, you mean that one game that people and everybody know? I think there's an, there's enough shows about that one already. Right. Maybe one day. I, I mean, we I have played uh, various iterations of uh, Dungeons & Dragons, but um, the way I want to do that show is to really focus on a, a particular setting. You know, let's talk about Spelljammer. Let's talk about Planescape. You know, something like that. Because there's so much... To it, and at the same time, people know everything about it. But this this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about Dream Park, which is the game I do believe I played the most in my life, excepting maybe the long-running campaign I ran through high school. But that switched systems a couple times. I can't really say it was a particular game or system. Like this one I played a bit during college, and then it really heralded the modern phase of my gaming in the, the first decade of the 2000s. Really, it's a game for one-offs and two-offs. I've had many players play it. The way we did it was like first-come, first-serve invitations and first-come, first-serve. So I had like a large pool of players. In your phase of the game put in the 2000s, I have 18 character sheets. Yeah, I was looking at the old website that you still have for some reason. And uh, I saw that there was like a total of like 28 players overall throughout the whole different phases. It's pretty crazy. And I have all those character sheets. Two of them were yours, so you you changed players, well, changed (laughs) characters. I don't remember anyone else really doing it except when we, like, when there was, like, a a new division, new kids that I was playing with. We had a couple veterans from the the former game, and they made new characters that time. And there's mine in there, too. I've played, uh, you know, I've, I've given the role of Game Master to others, and I have my own character sheet in there as well. Yeah, I think I have clock 20... Four sessions plus four game master sessions, something like that. It's obviously the one that I've played the most as well. So all in all, because I've also used this for demos. I've, I've played the the adventure that is in the core book. I've played as a demo at university for potential players or just people that wanted the experience or as part of a a big gaming kind of conventum. So I've probably played this with some thirty five people. All in all, it's a great game to use as an introduction like when when you're trying to pick up some new players and you're not really sure what their level of commitment is going to be the way we played it with these one shots and first come first serve thing really lets you test out players not just let the players test out the game but also you testing them out as especially in terms of like how available they're going to be yeah i think of those 35 or even in the 28 
characters that that ran through our games. Some of them, like one game, two games, you know, stuff like that. There's some people did not stick around. Uh, but it was something that's like, oh, yeah, my friend would like to try it like just once. And then, you know, we'd welcome that person. Yeah, we've had a lot of one-timers in, in that pool. Because or else it would have been problematic. It would have been people waiting their turn because there aren't enough seats around the table. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, we didn't have like 18 players just waiting around and hoping that, you know, trying to answer emails as quick as they could. Yeah. Or else you wouldn't have gotten to play so much. Yeah, and and also a lot of these one-timers, like all the time you invest putting into creating characters and stuff like that, if you're going to build a whole story around a character and then they come once and then they're like, I don't want to play anymore. That kind of stuff happens with tabletop RPGs all the time where you finally find a party, you spend weeks planning the first session, people come for the first session and then they're like, I don't want to do it anymore and it's so much wasted time but with dream park it's like quick to make a character make try it out once and then it doesn't matter if you don't want to come back because it's not a continuing storyline anyway we're good exactly let's tell people what this is dream park is a 1992 multi-genre role-playing game from our talsorian games it's designed by mike pondsmith that has a neat meta twist because players are asked to play role players in a future where rpgs can be played in elaborate theme parks The arenas are sort of part escape room, part holodeck, with actors, robots, and holograms framing the action, which is designed by the park's game masters. It is based on the 1981 novel by Larry Niven and Alan Barnes. A short series of novels actually followed. The last one came out like in 2018, and I just found that out now because I read the first three novels back in the day, maybe be even before the game. I I'm not sure if which one came first for me, but... They did like a follow-up, and uh, I just bought it. I, apparently, it's much weaker than the others, but I want to be a completist here, so I'm going to read it soon. It's, it's based on that novel, and so the players play a player who plays a character, and the GM gets to play in-game GMs. That's the twist. Really, there are several versions of the game, in a way. The core book itself is a bit too interested in miniature warfare, The stuff we never did. And it's got a lot of typos, etc. I feel like the three published adventures actually fix or clarify how the game best works. I mean, there's a good adventure included in the main book, but I'd advise anyone who wants to play to at least get one of the published scenarios. Curse of the Caliph or, you know, Race for El Dorado or the Fiendish Agents of Falkenstein. These are really good adventures, colorful, interesting, and they illustrate at least one way to play the game. But I think it's clearer when you read those how to actually play because the, the core book gets kind of lost in these, I don't know, I guess little events that you could imagine players just doing like a battle and that's all they do, like a paintball thing. And they spend too much time on that kind of stuff. That's not how you use the game. Which you just pointed out there how the core book just puts a lot of time into details. That seems to be a general problem with systems in tabletop RPGs. It seems like the publishers want to satisfy both the role R-O-L-E players and the role R-O-L-L players. So they'll add rules if you want to be a simulationist and put details and rules for everything, but you don't necessarily have to use them. Like They're even listed in the core rulebook as optional. Right, and I think I, I was quite happy 
to let these things be options and options that I didn't use. You know, it, it depends on your style of play. And some people like to have the miniatures and where, see the line of sight, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. But I'm more of a theater of the mind kind of GM. And I've also heard the criticism by people who have read the game and not actually played for any length of time that it doesn't really do what the books did. So I'd say that's another version of the game is how the books did it. In the novels, each game is really just a backdrop to the actual plot. So in the first book, for example, the park security chief poses as a player because there's a murderer in the cast. Well, Maybe you want to go deep in character development, give your player a life outside the games. But in reality, this game is just very good at running one-offs with a potentially rotating group of friends. So you can try a lot of genres and that kind of stuff. And I think it's more plot-driven than character-driven. Nothing stops you from doing the character stuff. And there are moments where you, you will be asked to do that and really take on the role of the player rather than the player's character. You could be like the security chief and what, every time there's a murder, he's got to go in. You know, it's, I feel like the, the novels have interesting <laughs> ideas, but you can't really do that with the game itself. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be really short as far as, you know, story arcs. We did a lot of the character and story arcs outside of the game, funnily enough. Not at the table, but maybe sending our, ourselves emails and that kind of stuff. You know, that there was a life to this thing, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the meta story on top of the game. You can still do that. And I kind of wish sometimes that I'd engineered, you know, a big snafu, you know, like the park goes dark during a game. And then, but the game isn't really set up for that because all your stats are your character stats. And if your character stats don't function because the game is off, because, you know, you're in a diehard situation all of a sudden because the park's been taken over by terrorists, I don't know. Nothing on your sheet really relates to the real person, almost nothing. So how do you run the game then? You know, that would have been an extra complication. But it feels like this is something that I might have wanted to do and, and never did or just... It just wasn't the format we were using. And the third, the third, fourth, whatever version of the game is my website, which you mentioned, because I eventually added a lot of options that the game doesn't. And we'll talk about that as we proceed. You know, we'll talk about character generation and options. But that became kind of uh, the game amplified. And the reason it's still online is not just because I don't throw away anything, which is true, but because I sometimes got messages from people who found it or asked about Dream Park because of other whatever mentions I've, I made somewhere. They wanted access to that, all that stuff. And I know people were using the, the site besides us. So Yeah, I at one point wanted to do a Dream Park adventure to show some friends what it was like. I remember using the site for that. So yeah, yeah. I, I was one of those people. Like all the stuff that is characters is in French. The invitations are in French and there might be like... But all the game stuff is in English. And it is a bit of a primer. I mean, even like the basic, basic rules are actually repeated there so that the players can access them in between games, which became important and we'll talk about why. Each scenario is is standalone. The players are sending their characters into a game and they don't know what that game is about, but every week when we play, whatever, there's a different environment. There are different rules. There are different genres that are being uh, put into place. So the system has to be really simple. And it is. It's a really a rather simple add your skill score to a six-sided die roll to beat difficulty numbers. That's all it is. Part of the complexity actually comes from having to buy skills and equipment and powers for every individual game. So every time your character is sort of asked to 
to be different and to really reimagine their character for that particular environment based on a few clues that they get. So let's talk about character generation. You had two characters. I've got the character sheets here. Uh, the original one was Andrew Klein. Gloves was his, uh, he was a doctor or cleric, depending on the situation. And uh, the other one that you eventually came up with was called Tommy Cruzen. Tommy Cruzen was a stuntman and a, like a famous actor, a famous action star that also wanted to play in Dream Park. Because the way we imagined it was that it, this was big business. And if you were participating under the big domes, the big games, you were a star. People knew who you were. People were watching these games at home or in the park themselves. So like the, the real Dream Park, when you look at it, it's a theme park and it's got, you know, like a dungeon zone and there's a, like a haunted uh, village zone. And it's, it's Disney, but with, yeah, I don't know, more cosplay and adventure to it. The domes where the games took place, you were a player and you were racking up points and you were considered an athlete slash actor, even if you were just a normal everyday person. Tommy Cruzen wasn't that. Tommy Cruzen was nothing, anything but normal. <laughs> <laughs> All of these characters, and the reason there are so many in a way, is that it's so simple to make a character that you can do it over the phone, and I have. We don't need to meet for this. I'm over the phone, 10-minute conversation. Your character sheet, which looks like a, a form that you had to fill in at the park. That's what it looks like. <laughs> it really does, actually, yeah. It's standby park security. Your character is made really, really quickly. And the idea is to make a character that is what the player is like. Because whatever the player is like, the character is going to kind of be like. So if you're strong, your character is going to be stronger than normal. If you're smart, your character is going to be smarter than normal because you can't stop yourself from being strong or smart for example. Right. The player brings a little bit of himself into the character. Talk to me about Gloves. This was a character you ran for a, a good while, but eventually got tired of, I guess. What were your decisions? I'm not really sure because the thing is, it was one of the first characters I ever made. And I remember mentioning this in last episode of Let's Roll that my first characters tended to try and be the stable and serious type. So I think I wanted to make a cleric Maybe because nobody else had, and I was like, all right, well, I'll fill that niche. And so that's why he ended up being a doctor, I think. And I was trying to make him, like, super serious about Dream Park. Like, he was a doctor, but at the same time, he was kind of interested in trying out this role-playing thing that was going on at the park. And he also, I remember, it was also about him keeping an eye on his potential clients in the game. He was thinking, well, people are coming to see me at uh, the nurse tent in Dream Park and I'm having to do first aid on them and helping them with their injuries. I might as well go into the games and do it there as well. And so I kind of saw Andrew Klein as somebody who didn't really have experience gaming and was really just there to try it out and at the same time kind of make his own real job easier. Those were the ideas behind Gloves. Okay. And you see, like, I'm looking at the sheet here. Eventually, you even made him multi-class because you had too many points and you needed to get rid of them. Well, we wanted to try out how multi-class would work, too. It was like, eventually, you decided, ah, you know what? Why don't I make it possible for people to become multi-class? Right. 
So as soon as you decided that was an option, then I wanted to try it out. Right. But you started as a cleric. You know, you got to put down your stats here. Male, mature adult, average size, that kind of stuff. You've got choices and you're putting little X's on them. It's a form. Uh, He's a physician that was one of the park professions or out-of-park professions. Uh, His motivation was uh, having a good time. Although it may have started with honor, there's a, like a little. Yeah, that's that. Those changes are me admitting to myself that I cannot role play what I wanted mm. to, and then just being like, you know what? It's not about serious and honor anymore. It's just about having fun because that's all I can. Yeah, do. because yeah, it does say that you crossed out stable and serious. Uh, you changed it to moody. Rash and headstrong, which is was more your personality around the table. <laughs> Quite the character development, Nespa. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot. Playing a character is not the same as writing a character. And when once you're in there, that's just not your personality. That can be tough. It gets interesting after that because there's personal attributes and personal problems, which are things that are going to impact the game, but that are true of the player. You had smart and dexterous even ambidextrous in there. And in personal problems, he was ugly, (laughs) apparently. So that would affect whatever skills your character had in the game. Sure, you can give yourself the highest charisma, but the fact that the character is uh, bad-looking means that's not going to work so well on the actresses or on, you know. So those are, like, easy to do. But there's also things that are more metatextual from the get-go and that actually have an impact in the game where it reminds you in the game that yeah they're just players for example i like this the uh powerful enemy if you take powerful enemy it means a game master hates you and then we had like a rotating cast of game masters we'll get to that if a game master hated you or had a rivalry with you for some reason then that would impact you in the game it might just be like Somebody's a bit of a trickster. It might be that all the villains want to kill that character first. Your character, and you have this for both characters in a way, but uh, one of them is tag along. And that can be like, a, it's just like an NPC that is following you around, maybe a fan, uh, which is, I think, what we ended up doing with Tommy Cruzen. No, with Tommy Cruzen, it was his manager. Oh, yeah, we, we changed it to Stupid Agent. But you had a tag along as yeah. well. It says Heckler. So, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot about. Yeah. Him. So basically, what that would mean is that some actor, you know, maybe you could put him like there's like this one player that is played by the game master, really, but gets killed off early or something. But that's hard to manage. But usually, it was an actor, and you would recognize, oh. Guard number three is that guy. Right, because the NPCs are played by actors as well. So, like, yeah, yeah. so that actor has a relationship with you, whether good or bad, and it's just like causing you problems because he's breaking character, he or she, you know, breaking character, kind of wants to help you but screws things up. So, you had stuff like that in there. What we added for Tommy Cruzen was, yes, the stupid agent, which meant that when you chose your stuff, there was always some random thing that the agent thought was important. Right. I would pick a random person that I know in real life that knew nothing about Dream Park, and I would give them the list of skills, and I would say, pick one, whatever. And they would ask me, like, what do you mean? What are their criteria? I was like, no criteria. Just pick whatever looks interesting to you. And I would take that as a skill, and I'd try to make it work in the game. It was a lot of fun, actually. That's one of my favorite homebrew things I've ever done. The character sheet has a lot of neat options, but there is other. There is room for something that we don't, that the game didn't think of uh, that would work with the personality of the person. And then after that, 
you know, under that is all the the actual game stuff. So everybody's got the same 10 basic skills, whether that's melee weapons, hand-to-hand, tinkering, athletics, awareness, range weapon, knowledge, dodge, stealth, and willpower. And those are the stats that you can actually improve through the game. As you become a better and better player, you have a chance to use some of the points you accumulate to actually improve some of these stats because those are the things that follow you from game to game. Right, they're like the only permanent attribute. They really are. That and the number of wounds you get sometimes can be devastating because you'll never get more hit points. <laughs> That's what it is. And it's somewhere between, uh, usually like you're, you had one character at 10 and another at 8. You get wounded rather easily in this game. There's an attrition going on there. So it kind of made sense to have a cleric, I suppose, to heal people. But you can also die. Who cares? It's a one-off game, and the player loses points when they die, but they can also return, quote-unquote, zombies, exactly like in the novels. You return as one of the villains or as in the horde of henchmen, and that gets you, you know, gives you a chance to recoup some of the points you lost. And it's a very unique experience for a player to come back as an NPC. I've never had that happen in any other game and it was so fun it was just fun coming back and then trying to throw wrenches in the other players spokes so that they too might die and then you can you're not alone dying and, uh, yeah it was a lot of fun Yeah, because in in some way you're competing you know you're collaborating but maybe some of the players thought well my standings now i just dropped a number of points and those are the same points you're going to use to buy your options for the next game So are you going to be a stronger character next time or a weaker character? Either could happen. But those points are kind of like they're on a scoreboard. And I think some players might think, I have to be near the top. So if other characters die, that helps me stay on top. So there was a way to think of it as a role-playing thing. Friendly competition. Yes. So when you chose your character, one of the things that you did decide, like we said you took a cleric, was a profession. So the game includes eight professions, and really the professions are built... Basically, there's like one of the basic skills that I mentioned, that's going to be like the highest. And uh, eventually I also added more of these because some of the attributes were not covered. And that allowed me to create athlete and, um, you know, whatever else I invented, scientist. The ones that do exist are fighter, magic user, thief, engineer, cleric, lore master, which is kind of a detective maybe... And uh, psionic and superhero. Some of these had, like, there are skills that are obviously more fightery, more engineer, more... Some of the options that you could get, including spells, miracles, psionic powers, and superpowers, are really built for that profession. So in taking that profession, you're saying, oh, these options are going to be, like, the normal rate for me. You know, you could be a thief and still pick a superpower in a superpowers game, if that's allowed, because each game allows different things. But then you'd say, well, those superpowers cost double what they normally would, because I am not, I didn't pick a superhero in the first place. The thing with the superhero is, if you pick that, and most games are not about superheroes, and often you will not have access to superpowers, so you're going to be the Batman of the group, you know, you're still the hand-to-hand fighter, you're the, you're the Bruce Lee, which isn't bad either. So even though the book gives you a lot of options, anyone going to my website, and I'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes, is going to find that I added a heck of a lot of stuff to that. And not just to the professions, but to like the list of skills and spells and powers and everything. Yeah. Like in the game, equipment and some skills are basically passed 
present or future. I split that up in, in more little increments to say that the past isn't just swords. It might be muskets, you know, stuff like that. So uh, I played around with tech levels, which I stole from GURPS. I stole a lot of the equipment from GURPS. I stole a lot of superpowers from the Marvel Superheroes game. The Ultimate uh, Powers Handbook, in particular. I'm not sure about spells and whatnot. I probably stole from D&D or whatever. So I wanted to have the most options possible since they were not bound by a book. The website could go on and on and on and on and have a lot of options. Really, the, the reason I made the website is because we lost a lot of time at the beginning of each game as people would pass around the sheaf of papers that had the options on there. If you pick your options at the table, those are like that's a half hour gone. If you could do it beforehand on a website, well then, you know, you came to the game ready. Once you're doing the website, you're just really transcribing everything that's in the book. Well, why not add more? That uh, was my you know, basically my motivation there. Let's look at game mechanics. What did you think of that? It was so simple. It was very simple. So basically the way it worked was you want to do something, you look at the appropriate attribute, you add to that the appropriate skill, and then you roll 1d6 and you add that as well. And you're aiming for a target number depending on the difficulty. Let's say you want to jump, then you would roll athletics plus jumping, roll a dice, and then you try to beat your eight. So it was that simple. What I remember really liking about it, other than its simplicity, was its flexibility. Let's say you want to fire a gun, then you would ru you would roll ranged weapon plus firearm, and then you roll your dice. But let's say you want to identify a gun or know something about a gun, then you can roll knowledge plus firearms instead of rolling ranged weapons and i remember thinking that was so cool like i was a, i was still very new to rpgs all i knew was dnd &D, and like dnd &D basically from what i remember was very specific what a skill could do what i liked about dream park was this idea that skills could be based on different attributes depending on what you want to do with them. So I really thought that flexibility was cool. Since the game's going to change all the time, you want it to be that flexible. A fight was a little different because each person had a dodge score as well. So you would roll, the, the target number would, would shift basically because you would be rolling your attack, but the other person would be rolling the dodge. And that became the difficulty number. You were kind of two dice kind of beating one another. Uh, what was weird, perhaps, or different, is that damage. Right. For damage, you had to go to a table. You could kind of derive it mathematically, but you went to a table because all the, the weapons had, had words attached. And then you would cross-reference that with the armor that you would have. It went from very light to cosmic in either right. sense. Well, that was more of a you problem. We as players didn't really have to worry about that. About that. It's like, do you want to do more damage? Then instead of a light weapon, get a deadly weapon. Okay, I get it. But you're the one who had to do all the ca the calculations and the table cross-references. So yeah, uh, I don't remember that being a problem for me. You know, it's a good thing that one of the products that they, they did come out with was the Game Master screen. There's a booklet in there with a lot of other equipment options, mostly. And it had like, like these cool cards of the characters from the novels. But the screen had the table in there and that made it really simple. I had a lot of experience with DC Heroes, as uh, people on the network might know. 
Right, column shifts and that stuff. Yeah, so yeah. that also worked with tables. I was used to that. I don't think that was a problem. Some of the fun things that I actually ported over to other games that are in the, these rules include things about uh, chases, how to run a chase, and you know how far away are you? How, the, you know the cars, I guess, or the vehicles. How far away are they at any given time? Given on you know how many rolls does it take until you actually catch up? What happens if people? have a chance to turn around, that kind of stuff. And with dogfights is, well, well, when is the plane facing the other plane so that it can actually fire on it? Very simple, smooth little modular thing that they've got in there that I have reused. And I feel like I should have used more in Dream Park itself. I'll say that. And then you've got spells, miracles, and psionics all kind of work the same. Not necessarily the same powers, but it's all about rolling to make sure you succeed and then the effects magically succeeds superpowers you didn't have to roll it was different they cost a lot more yeah but they weren't treated as skills and i think with the spells and um, miracles your target number is always six but you would lose a point in your skill every time you would use it which was the way to basically do the D thing the mana thing or the uh, the mana yeah. Thing, yeah there are two things i would change about the game that i haven't already changed one of them is character improvement at some point, and we saw that in our games, like some characters had too many points. Right. I think for me, that's the big problem with this system, or at least the way we ran it. Because if you're always playing with the same players and you're trying to have a bit of a continuous long form storyline, maybe that's not a problem. But the way we were playing it, we had new characters come in with 20 points and then other players go in. They were coming into the game with like 150 points. So like, how do you balance out that point difference? What what was your strategy here? Well, it seems to have been <laughs> to create things that are big gifts for big players. So if you look at the website, all the stuff where I added the multi-classing stuff, uh, where you could multi-class with any other class, basically, that had a big point cost. Right, so, so you would dump all your points into the multi-class, go back down to low point levels, but now you can access different options cheaper. Right. right, that was one way to do it. I mean, otherwise, you're sort of targeting the big players and trying to take them down so that it will lower their points. I remember also like later invitations to games where you would say what the options were. Like, you can't use all your points kind of stuff, you know? There was stuff like that, I think, where you it had to be balanced. That is a problem. Maybe it's just there's too much XP in the game. Every bad guy you kill, you're getting points for it. It's a little bit video gamey in that way, you know, to make it feel like it's a person playing a game. So you want that kill shot and that kind of stuff, which is interesting because then players can compete for that. But if every henchman is worth points... That eventually, you know, there are games where you're going to accumulate a lot of points. I don't know that we as players knew that, though, because I don't I don't remember us competing for the kill shot. Uh, I remember some players doing it because at the end of the games, I would break it down. You know, this is when you get your points and that's OK. And then the kill shot uh, like that big villain. I know everybody chipped in, but it's only the kill shot is worth points and whatever. There is a danger of your characters becoming too powerful. So you may want to restrict the amount of XP you're giving or be aware that if you bring in new players, it's easy to bring in a new player, but that rookie is going to have a harder time 
or seem to be very depowered compared to other people. But it doesn't really last. As long as that person survives, you know, next game, they probably got 40 points. Oh, right. That's the other way you control the point level, is you make sure you kill the high point character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Because when you die, you lose half of your points. But then you can recuperate a half of that. So probably you'd lose like a quarter of your points. And this is something that happens in the novels as well. In the novels, there is a thing where if you lose, if you go under 10 points, a beginning character could be out of the game entirely very quickly if he dies like a couple times in a row. In the novels, they might even gamble their points away if you lose everything or, you know, your character would be dead dead. You know, the core book talks about this. It's never happened. I've, I've never seen it happen. It would take an extreme run of bad luck. Yeah, because Andrew Klein played, I played 18 sessions with that character and died five times. So death is pretty common, but you would have to die many games in a row for it to happen. But now that you mentioned gambling, that's something we should have been doing more, like between players, just gambling our points amongst each (laughs) other. I bet you I do better than you this game. (laughs) You can put points on the line. That would have been fun. Create a point economy. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think some people would have gone for that. Let's talk about putting the meta in the metatextual here, because how does one of these games go? And I think that's the magic of it. I think like the, the structure of each of these games is what made it fun, at least for me. First, you receive a mysterious invitation. You know, the, the invitation doesn't tell you much. It has flavor. Let me just grab the very first one that I have in my files. I got like this big brick of files here. This is obviously for The Curse of the Caliph which is one of the, the games that is published by Art Elsorian. And it is a mix, I'll tell you now, it's a mix of Arabian Nights and science fiction. But you don't know that going in. What you do know is this, and th- these ones were on paper, eventually they were all on the website. Shalom, currently looking for brave and unmovable heroes of the land to undertake a mission befitting of the gods. Will accept muscled swordsmen, mysterious practitioners of the mystic arts, or any other mercenary traveler willing to wager his or her life for glory and honor. Skills and weapons from ancient eras only, if you please. No superpowers will be admitted into this realm of adventure, but magic, miracles, and mental disciplines are not a problem. If interested, register in the Curse of the Caliph game. And then it says, like, the length of the mission. And our missions were, like, one session, short mission. Long missions were two sessions. That's the most we went within a a single game. Tells you exactly what you can or cannot take as far as options go. And it gives you just enough flavor that you think you know what the game's going to be about. And then for me, the fun was, let's throw a twist in there that they're not expecting. And for me, as a player, the the fun in getting that invitation, you have no idea how hyped I was about getting these invitations. Usually, I don't like doing character generation all that much. I like the idea of thinking of what a character's personality might be like, his quirks and stuff like that. But when it comes to statting out the character, I usually find that boring. But in Dream Park... For some reason, I was super into it, maybe because it was easy and because it was so free and I got to do something different every time we played. But like 
getting those invitations and like really analyzing word for word what the hints were and trying to picture what the game might be about so that I pick skills that are appropriate and are going to make me win the game you know uh, and yeah. I'm using uh, I'm using air quotes here for win but that was so much fun for me it's the only game that I've ever liked really statting out characters I, I think it's also like it's a shopping list you know in a way there's fun to that also you know me that I, I'm very precise with words, and this even like these invitations were both in English and in French. Like they're, they're both versions are on the sheet depending on you know what it, players ease, I guess. I'm very very specific with words and turns of phrase and syntax, and sometimes I'll hide the twist in a syntactical <laughs> joke or something so that it sounds like it's something. I take my cue from the very first game that they offer in the core book, which is the uh, the big zombie pirate game. Now. Are they big zombies? Is the game big? Are they zombie pirates? Is it a pirate game with big zombies? Very often the title will be misleading as well. Right, because what it actually is is dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zombie dinosaurs. And then after that, okay, so the players all get equipped. They've picked their, their things in the game. I guess they're going into costume shops and they're, they're, they're picking out their guns or swords and whatnot. And then they all show up ready for the game. And this is all inspired by the novel. We had rotating game masters. So there's always, in the tradition of the game, that person is going to be running the show. It's the Truman Show, you know? It's a, you're probably in some sort of control room, and they're, they're talking to all the actors and activating robots and holograms, and they've probably got a big crew. Uh, and they've planned this, you know? So they're stars, too, in a way. You know, people know who they are. Uh, they get to meet the players just before the players go in. And the players traditionally, have three questions they can ask the Game Master, and the Game Master has to answer yes or no. Um, so there's always that interaction, which makes the Game Master's characters unto themselves. And I know that for me, there were more than three, but there were three key Game Masters that I basically cycled through. And they were all based on Game Masters that I'd had in my life. And I've never, I, you know, I've very, until recently, I've never really let a game master run me for very long because I always find them lacking in some way or it just didn't work out. But they all had quirks that I thought made them bad game masters at that time in their lives anyway. And so each of these game masters were blatantly called that person's name. So, so Rob Tam was a very good friend of mine, was always the sort of game master who was, who liked to torture you. If you had a girlfriend in the game, she would be dead by the first session. The cops were always after you. It was never fair. And he chuckled through it. So I made him a very kind of impish game master who was laughing at the players. Then there was Marcel Fortin. And Marcel here was a guy I, I gamed with once. He was like the big Han show. You know, he ran like these adult games. He was probably like 19. I have no idea. But he seems so old to us. Probably more than that. He was probably like in his 20s. He was a security guard somewhere. And he had these players that he had for a long time. I went once. He did a total party kill. Uh, and he immediately regretted it. And he spent the whole time fighting with his buddies about rules. And they were pulling out like these weird books to prove their points. It was terrible. 
So I had him frustrated by the players. You know, like he, he designed this whole thing and then the players were kind of screwing it up. Even if he had enmity with a player, that player was always going to one-up him anyways. You know, he was all you know, grumble away. And then the third one was Stéphane Raymond. And Stéphane was the game master that killed everyone that, you know, basically you could not run through a game without dying three, four times. People were bringing new characters to the table all the time. He was using death traps over and over and over and over. So you could never last a session with him, apparently. So I played with him once and uh, we decided to really troll him. The effect was sort of the same. He was the game master who played Dungeons and Dragons to kill the players. He saw it as a competition with them. How can I make it impossible for them to win? That was his mindset, which is not at all my mindset, but I made him like that in the game. So he was reviled. People hated him. He hated everyone. And that was sort of his, his take on Dream Park. So you had all three obviously. The other ones I, I were like creations, like I needed a new game master that wasn't so... <laughs> well, you uh, also picked game masters from the novels, I remember. There was one. Lopez, the games were very specific in the novels. They were like these really well-researched culture pieces. Like in the first novel, the world is based on cargo cults. What would that mean if the cargo cult ethos or mythos was real and the players had to figure that out so when i did like a tibetan one and i really wanted to breathe buddhism and that kind of stuff i brought in lopez and make it kind of special for those who had read the novel maybe and uh, kiev which was the uh, the female game master was a creation of mine whole cloth the idea was to have someone who was maybe more like someone that the players kind of had the hots for rather than have that rivalry going. That was like a more interesting dynamic and I gave her like these dungeon crawls and these more James Bond games and that kind of... When the, the genre was more pure, I gave it to her. And each of the other guys were more like multi-genre, so Rob Tam would just mix genres. It's gangsters, but they use magic! He would also insert dinosaurs and or Nazis in every game. Yeah. You love those? <laughs> and then there was... Uh, see, they had their quirks that the players kind of knew. So it's, oh, this is an invitation from Rob Tam. Okay, okay. This is yeah. what we're in for, you know? Yeah, and, and with Stéphane Raymond, I remember we nicknamed him the monster uh, just because of his personality. But I remember his games being my favorites, I think. I felt like they had a dark, serious tone to them that we weren't really getting from other games. And I, I appreciated that a lot. And I made him a Lovecraft nut so that he wanted to bring a Lovecraftian sense. Basically, his shtick when it was, came to multi-genre was to take something that was in a certain period and put it in another period. So it would be Lovecraft, but it would take place in Shakespeare's time in that world of, of you know, Elizabethan theater. I mean, no credit to me. I was poaching from, you know, all sorts of games, all sorts of scenarios. I was stealing from a role-playing game magazines. I was taking, you know, if there was a collection of role-playing adventures, I probably stole from it so that the, the genre would change all the time. And I, of course I made modifications, but a lot of those games that are well-remembered are basically adaptations of other games because I'm trying to use the most of my collection. It's always my, you know, my priority when designing games is, okay, how much of this collection can I use? How much of my investment can I make good on is a bit like that. And with Marcel Fortin to complete the set, his 
games were more like the published ones, which was, it looks like a certain game, and then halfway through, there's a twist. And now we're in a different kind of game. You know, there's like two worlds. So I kind of had these various ways to do multi-genre, and I attached them to each of the game masters, and they would have an interaction with the players. And in fact, you could actually do like GM error and make it part of the game. It's like, oh, I screwed up and made it too tough or too easy. But then you would go, no, that's the guy. I know it's me, Cisco, doing the, you know, making the mistake. But I could say it's the game master making the mistake and have him reflect on that and talk to the players about it. And uh, and he's in your ear, you know, laughing or not. Right. That was an interesting part, too. Like, because we were gamers participating as different characters in a game, we also had these Well, we talked about the meta interactions with the actors and stuff, but the game masters would sometimes chime in during the game to laugh at us or give us clues or stuff like that. That was pretty cool, too. Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, speaking of meta, once my character, Andrew Klein, decided he would try out being a game master, he became an intern for Rob Tam. And so Rob Tam would show up and start laughing at the players during Andrew Klein's games as well. (laughs) And um, we gave Andrew Klein a new skill from that point on where he had the ability to know Game Master. So I could have a skill where I could do a role to kind of predict what the Game Master would be doing next in in the scene. Okay, you're ready. You ask your questions. The Game Master walks out of the room, and then, like, the doors open, and you're in the game. But none. it's never... Doors open and you walk into Jurassic Park and it's all leisurely. No, no. Doors open, water comes rushing in. Yeah, no taverns here. We're not meeting (laughs) around a table. No, because the game has to, you know, you have to go in gear right away. Yeah, start right in the action. That was a lot of fun. And figure it out as you go. So it's like doors open, you're parachuting out, you know, (laughs) doors open, whatever. So there was always immediate danger when you started a game. There was always what the hell is happening, and that's from the novels as well. The novels were very, like, part of the game is figuring out what the game is about. Yeah, and every tabletop RPG should start like that. Now, I, <laughs> I'm i convinced there's no better way to get players into the game immediately, and then you just become invested. That's true, that's true. And then we already talked about the end, where you may die in the game and then return, so that's part of the meta experience. But then there's all the stuff that you sort of uh, hinted at earlier, between sessions, what are the kind of the things that we might do to to keep that game alive? Well, I remember my favorite thing that we did. I remember with Tommy Cruzin, he would actually have like a blog or something like that. What was it? No, it was, I would create a news feed, like um, E! Entertainment, you know, that TV channel E! with mm-hmm. the exclamation mark. I would have a reporter, a entertainment reporter, make a article about Tommy Cruzin and his performance in the latest game and kind of like throw jabs at him. But my favorite thing definitely that we did was the Niven Awards. Right, the Niven Awards. Same. I wish other games, you could do that with other games and it would feel more like it's normal because it's fun to do regardless. But yeah, every year, like three years running anyways, we had these awards where people would come, roll out the red carpet. I had my roommate was doing (laughs) red carpet interviews when people were coming in. It was just going to be like a party. But there were awards. There were little plaques that you could win, cardboard, and with like there was a picture of the adventure, like something that evoked the adventure on it. Basically, all the players voted ahead of time, and uh, we I just sent like here are all the games, 
vote for your top three or whatever it is, and then it accumulates points, and you're not sure who's got, what's going to win, but best game is obviously one where we don't give a plaque because it's just going to be mean. Best player, you won best player the first time, uh, or Andrew Klein did, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was the first time, but uh, it was. I think it was. Was it? Yeah. I thought Fireball got the first win, but maybe so, not. I think he just brought a fake trophy. Yes. <laughs> Assuming he would win. Yeah, he did bring a fake trophy. So yeah. there was a, <laughs> there was a or real trophy, really, but it's something he stole from. It's, it was like a hazing prank, anyway. But you you could win best move. There was like a number of categories that players could actually win. Best death, where all the nominations were Gakar. Yeah, Gakar, our good friend who uh, died many times because we would do like a two-session thing and then he wouldn't show up at the second one. Push yep. him off a cliff, running gag. You like me right now. You like me. We give the awards. There's like these musical numbers that I've arranged and I feel like that was a celebration of our gaming that, like I said, like we did it three times, it would be fun to do with any group of it for any game, but then you don't have the conceit of the player playing the player, which made this, the gala, kind of uh, really more natural to do, more organic. Well, yeah, and the mechanics of Dream Park and the whole meta thing kind of fits for an awards gala like that, because I'm sure in the world of Dream Park, let's forget that we're just having fun here, but I'm sure that in the world of Dream Park, there probably does really exist awards for the best players yeah it's probably an actual thing uh, but we had other things like you know fake announcements for putting stuff on ebay that came from the game and that you know different people had different shticks even the game masters at a shticks or the park could host different types of games in the novels there's a deathmatch option the third book is a deathmatch thing where you know your points are actually up for grabs kind of thing you know with one last man standing i don't think we ever did that i did do something i called iron ref it's kind of inspired by something i found in pyramid magazine where different game masters would compete to create adventures with like these three or four objects in them. So I would ask players for two or three themes and then each game master would have to to put those three elements in a game and then you'd run through each of the games consecutively and each of these games has those three elements but they're completely different and then the players would vote on which game they like best and then that would eliminate a game master and then the, the next round would have fewer game masters participating so we did do that a couple times which was just a way to structure the games but also give me i suppose the you know kind of a, a challenge so there were a lot of fun meta elements And like we said earlier, if you like the novels and you want to do the novels, then you can probably throw a wrench in the works that is more like the novels, whether that's that murder investigation or there's something happening outside the park that has an impact on the games or that's up to you. And I don't think I ever cracked that nut. Kind of wish I did. Never really did. Multi-genre versus pure genre. Multi-genre. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the question because we we did I did do some pure genre ones yeah. because I'm stealing from my library. Did you like those games at all, or must it be gangsters with spells? <laughs> no, I'll say it this way: I liked the pure genre a lot as well. But what I like about Dream Park is that it's going to be a different genre from game to game. So you're going to get your multi-genre in that way either way. But like, if I have to pick between a campaign where there's a lot of different genres that switch from time to time, or a campaign where we're stuck in fantasy for a whole three years, then I'm going to pick multi-genre every time. Just for variety. Yeah. 
but as to, uh, when it comes to just like session per session everything goes it's fun but yeah what was a lot of fun about the multi-genre games is when we did not know that the genre switch was coming for curse of the caliph for instance we thought it was just going to be arabian nights the whole time and next thing we know we're in a star wars universe flying a magic carpet in space you know like that was a lot of fun just because it was such a big surprise we played so much there's some games i have completely forgotten some of my fondest memories are the weirdest games you know there's a mexican wrestler game that we did that is not a genre you expect at all and I think they probably had aliens in there or something, or the coming of an Aztec god or something. I remember that setting, for example. I, of course, I remember all the Lovecraftian ones, because eventually did so many, you know? It's like, I, I wanted to do some Call of Cthulhu, but then, you know, always put it in a strange environment. Yeah, and they were some of our best games, too. They were a lot of fun, because we weren't used to doing a lot of investigation in our games, but the Lovecraftian ones kind of, like pushed us that way that was a lot of fun that was a good way to nerf players i gotta say because Mm. if you're losing the game because you're going mad from having seen something or doesn't matter how many points you have yeah exactly it's like you you've got like the best armor you're wearing cosmic armor but nothing's gonna stop that poison gas nothing's gonna stop that you know that you saw the eye of cthulhu open uh, that, you know, all of that stuff is still going to affect you. And that was a good way to nerf big players, I felt. So probably that's why I turned to Lovecraft a lot. But, you know, I particularly enjoyed going into into genres you would never use for a length of time or never think of using for any length of time. So, for example, uh, remember that futuristic baseball game? It wasn't baseball, but, you know, it, aliens come down and you got to compete against them in a sport. I do remember that game because um, I was playing Tommy Cruising in that one and my stupid uh, manager had picked zero-G movement for me in a game that was not advertised as being futuristic whatsoever. So I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to use this. And then surprise, surprise, we made it work. So I have a fond memory of that. See, manager wasn't so dumb. Yeah. Now I'm forgetting. That's where we discovered our love for Cowboys, which eventually became Shift World. That's right. We mentioned it last time. Yeah. But we did a steampunk cowboy thing, steampunk mecha Old West thing. Those three genres did turn up in our Shift World game, as mentioned last time. So it was a good way to try everything. And even if you you do one that isn't so great, next week it's completely different. It's also where I discovered my love for Inamine, or rather my passion and obsession, because I've bought every single Inamine book after playing the Rats and Angels adventure that we did. So It's about trying out other games. I just had to convert them to the system. But when the system is just like these basic skills... And these basic roles, it's so easy to convert any game to this. Well, actually, that's a question that I had for you. Like, how did you manage statting out all these games from different genres into Dream Park? Was that conversion pretty easy to do? Because it seems like it would be a lot of work. It was, I I imagine, but it wasn't so bad. I mean, you just look at block stats and you go, meh. You know, if you know your Dream Park and you know how much of a threat something should be, then you're just basically use, you know, you're recycling the same essential stat blocks and saying, well, who cares? It doesn't have to be like that is a perfect conversion. It just has to be conversion for the players now. How big is this threat? And because there aren't a lot of nuts and bolts or a lot of options, but it's all the same system all the time, I felt like it was pretty easy to convert. I'm pretty sure I could do it now without any preparation. I could sit down with an adventure and and basically convert it pretty naturally, even though I haven't played in years. So would you say that like Dream Park then would be 
a good type of game to run for game masters who are looking to find something that's quick to prepare and don't want to spend as much time as game masters tend to spend in preparation? I would say so. I think it's uh, once you've learned the system and it's very easy to learn. If you look at the book, there's a lot of options for, you know, like all the optionals are very complicated, too complicated for their own good. The rest is so simple. You kind of have to understand how the park works for it to be fun to make. You know, but you, somebody could use the system for anything without any game masters and all of this meta stuff around it. Right. I, I don't think that's the best use of the game. I don't either. No, but as a simple system that works with anything, a, a simple generic system, it's certainly an option. And because it's multi-genre and focused on one shots you can just like go get pre-made adventures from any game so that also makes preparation a lot easier i guess that's what i used to do and i learned a lot from the core books i'm not unhappy that i have this core book because one of the things that it taught me a lot of these books have discussion on how to game master how to play and that kind of stuff you know those sections that go what is a role-playing game (laughs) it's in every game because you never know it might be somebody's first it's also pretty trite for the person that is already gaming. It isn't, you know, rocket science. But the section on game mastering has this advice on structuring a game, which is, I find, like very useful and something that I've taken with me through other games and game design. You start a game with a hook, and then you basically, you proceed through a cycling of action and non-action scenes. And those action scenes may be fights, but they can be chases or they can be like physical obstacles. And then the non-action stuff can be social interaction. It can be puzzle solving, you know, stuff like that. If you cycle through them, you're guaranteed, more or less, guaranteed that the players of any interest will get their due. So if it's too talky, you will look at your structure and say, oh, no, because it's just fights, 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 or the reverse. There's not enough action, and some of my players are going to get bored because that's not their style of play. So you can look just at the structure of, you know, what you're planning for the adventure, and even say... Oh, there's too many fights. Let's change one for a chase. They give you like the types that you could use. And that's been immensely useful to me. And I realize it sounds like, duh, but <laughs> it's screenwriting 101. But at the same time, I played games when I haven't been thinking about this. And then at the end of the game, I go, mm, you know, that was really very non-eventful and then suddenly there's like this big fight at the end like even though it's obvious unless you actually force yourself to work on it you don't necessarily see the importance of doing that like you might skip over it and then like you say you have a pretty dull game you want to play with cliffhangers you want to play depending on the style play i found those sections were like for the first time and maybe the last i found good game master advice in a game book. A game based on a novel. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe. I I don't know. That was, for me, there were lessons to playing Dream Park. And that was one of the lessons. And, And then, I mean, I pretty much systematically did that for those games because it was so in mind. But when I think about this game, it's really the start of my modern gaming style. Like that first decade of the 2000s, probably through... 2012 maybe, playing all the time and playing a lot of variety and stretching my own limits as a game master, whereas it's been intermittent other than high school in the 80s, difficulty getting groups. And this, the lesson or the what the opportunity that Dream Park gave me was, okay, let's stop screwing around with trying to, to get a long-running campaign like I had when I was 
a teenager with all these adults who have lives and kids and jobs and can never come to the session. And with Dream Park, you could say, well, it's built for one-offs. We're going to just run it as one-offs. You come, you don't, it doesn't matter. Your character's still alive. Uh, you're just not racking up points or losing points that week. It's fine. And as long as I'm available, obviously, and there's at least three players, we can play. And that was a, an important lesson about scheduling in the, uh, you know, in the adult world that really impacted how I designed future games. Even ones that were supposed to be long running were often just seasonal. And that was because I'd learned my lesson. And Dream Park taught me that it could still be fun. It could still work. It was my beginning of starting to use soundtracks. And I don't know if you remember, but they were all on a tape back then. <laughs> I actually I don't remember the music of Dream Park. Maybe because we didn't get our own individual copies for that one. But you couldn't because uh, I I just put all the songs I wanted, like Curse of the Caliph and all. There was music on cassette. On a cassette, all in a row, or I switched cassettes. You know, it's not seamless. You can't just skip tracks. So I can't imagine why I thought I could do this or should do this. <laughs> As a GM, you're always looking for those extra pieces to add atmosphere, right? It's like, oh, the players are playing chess. Let's have a chessboard and actually play chess. Oh, there's a concert going on in this scene. Why not actually put music in the background, right? So I like doing that. I mean, we did one where it was a silent film, so people had to write their dialogue on cards. Ooh, that's cool. I don't think I was in that one. No, that was later. Those ideas come from RPG magazines or other games. or They're, they're not necessarily mine. Some of them are. But Dream Park is a game that lets you do that kind of stuff. Right. And nobody's going to think, well, now this is weird. Yeah. Why are we suddenly doing this? We're suddenly doing this because every, every game is different. And this is the difference this time. So it allows you to try things. Did you learn any lessons as a player? Yeah. I think the fact that everything, because it was one-shots, it made things kind of like ethereal for the players you didn't attach yourself so much to the idea of making sure your character survives i mean it had a consequence if you died you lose half your points but you kind of quickly realize that you can get through the one shot it doesn't really matter what amount of points you have you can have fun with it anyway so i think it taught me how to detach myself from my character and just enjoy playing my character in the moment rather than worrying about making sure my character survives. Because I feel like with a lot of games before Dream Park, when I played, I was always worried like, okay, I, I have to put points in combat and dodging and armor and just to make sure my character survives. And I only have two points left for social stuff. Well, I, okay, I guess I'll be seductive. I don't know. But like with Dream Park, knowing that I'm going to get to play a different character next game anyway, I'm not attached to the points as much. And I get to try out different types of characters without worrying about having to put a lot in combat stats. I think it made me appreciate a whole different side of playing as a player. It was weird killing characters because I'm not the kind of game master that wants characters dead. <laughs> I'm thinking right. long term. I'm thinking when somebody dies, it's for a good reason and part of the narrative. And But this, you can be a, you know, you can be a killer GM for a session. It's freeing. There's a freedom associated to not being too attached to the characters in the story. My only total party kill, my only TPK was in Dream Park. 
after you'd gone, I auditioned new players. Some of them became good. Some of them, I'm not sure. You know, there was like that one veteran was there. And all the others were new guys, and some of them didn't get... They didn't get it. I don't mean Dream Park, I mean role-playing. They thought they were doing sketch comedy or something. The characters were useless. You know, they weren't trying to achieve anything. They were just screwing around, and they all died as a matter of course. That's the only time while the one veteran shook his head. (laughs) (laughs) But I would never have done a TPK in any other game. But here, I mean, maybe Paranoia, but... Here, no problem. Oh, I still have not played Paranoia. Uh, Except for you play that one again, you gotta call me. Okay, I will. Looking forward to that one. Um, I would say the other thing that I learned as a player too was just like experimenting with how different skills and options might fit together because you're remaking your character every session you kind of get new ideas on what character generation could be should i start picking these skills first or or these skills first and and just like imagining different possibilities and that's one thing that was fun with this homebrew to it all the stuff that you added there was a lot of because dream park doesn't force you to follow a certain kit for a certain class you can think about the idea of a jack-of-all-trades and what that might look like. And so there was a lot of experimentation. And um, it was you learn a lot about who you are as a player when you go through so much character generation and so many different types of characters every game. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but it just gives you a lot of experience in something that in most games you do at the beginning and maybe never again. Exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah interesting. So that was Dream Park. You're listening to the podcast, but there is an image gallery at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on Cisco's blog of Geekery. I'll put them both there. And I'll put some images from the books, uh, show you what the covers look like. I've also found a stash of character cards. All the game products came with these cards that on the face of it had a character and on the back had stats. And so I would use like, you know, like a, a plexi shield or something and slide in these cards and so the players would see what they were up against and I would see the stats in the back of them. There's the published ones and then originally, I didn't do that all the way through, but originally, in puts time, I did it most of the time. I made cards for everything that didn't have cards. You know, all these things that I was creating myself or stealing from other things, I made a card with, you know, a photocopied, on one side, the image of the character, of the bad guy on the back, the stats. And so I found that stash, I took a picture of a mess of cards I'll put that on there as well to show my work. Your obsession. Mm, uh, I want to thank my guest, Gloves, Tommy Cruzen, Daniel Poutouellet for coming hey, back to the park. It was great to be here. Thanks for this awesome trip into memory lane. And even so, I mean, we could have gone through every adventure. It's, oh yeah, that one, you know, there's there were so many. <laughs> yeah, there would have also been some, oh yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> and I'll be back after the break with Game Master Advice and your feedback on our previous episode. Thanks again, Put. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey there. Welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. If I were Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. Very well, I shall give you all my power to use as you will. Ever started a role-playing game in medias res, in the middle of things? Well, you should think about it. It makes for a refreshing change. The idea is to start a session off with an action set piece or in the middle of a big twist, ignoring any kind of slow-paced introduction or setup in favor of waking the players up right from the get-go. It might not work for every campaign. Some keep track of every waking moment and wouldn't allow for such a narrative jump, but I can give you a few examples. In an espionage game, or any game that relies on missions, go the James Bond route and start things off with a big stunt. It could be the end of the previously untold adventure, segueing into the new scenario. It might be the start of the mission, but with a dull mission briefing played via an envelope full of documents or a quick flashback after the initial action is over. In epic poetry in Medias Res is usually prelude to a long flashback as we go back to the beginning, and only then after that, followed by the rest of the story. Games need never flash back at all, especially in cases where it would deflate the tension to know everyone was alive and well in the middle of the story. But you could fiendishly describe how things have changed and force the players not only to play their characters through the various obstacles and twists of the story, but also to set themselves up for that middle. Who is that dead body on the floor? Where's the team's van? Just how did your cyberdecker get painted blue? Players know they'll survive until the discovery of the dead body, but they must make sure to lose the van and drop a bucket of paint on a guy. I mean, so destiny dictates. One version of this that works well but is a bit of a cheat, is what I call in amnesia res. In this scenario, you set up a middle situation, like we've just described, but the characters come into it not remembering how they got there. There's no flashback, only an investigation leading to their putting the pieces of the puzzle together. The space marines wake up from cryosleep to an empty ship, and there is something there with them, or they've been surgically altered, that kind of thing. Memory loss, spells, uh, temporal distortions, this is the, the DNA of this kind of idea. One fair warning, while you're designing the middle situation for your players, make sure you never make a decision for any of them that they would never have taken themselves. A gambling addict might have to start a game naked in an alley, that's fine. And it's a good way to play up disadvantages the player took. But you can't start a game with a character on the run from the police because he just killed his wife. Unless there's a major twist uh, or you're playing something incredibly effed up, like Unknown Armies or Over the Edge. Maybe give the player a veto on any such thing. But that depends on how improvised or prepared your sessions are. So remember, where the adventure starts doesn't have to be at the start. Okay, well, let's look at some of your feedback uh, on fireandwaterpodcast.com about our previous episode, which was episode uh, two. Let's roll GURPS Old West and through Old West, something we called Shift World. So uh, Max Travers says, I'll be very interested to hear about a group that actually engaged in one of the oft-touted premise by Steve Jackson Games that involved players and GMs adventuring through infinite worlds using GURPS. 
I had some Gerbis books, but never got to play and found character creation to be dauntingly boring back when I was 15 or so. So therefore, I'm looking very much forward to further installments of the Shift World Saga. Yeah, it's not exactly Infinite Worlds, but that is something that uh, the 3rd edition might have mentioned, but that was very much implemented in 4th edition GURPS, just not quite the same way. And uh, yes, we'll get more chapters of this, I'll space them out, Shift World will return. Boston Moss says, missed the first one, there is no feed for this show? How can I catch up? Uh, so anytime you're on fireandwaterpodcast.com, and obviously you are if you're uh, leaving comments, look at the bottom of the post for any show. There you will see tags. If you click the tag that says Let's Roll or whatever the name of the show is, it will give you a list of all the posts with that tag. So that's a good way to, to navigate through any uh, show that is just on Fire and Water Presents like this one. Corey Drew says, fantastic episode. GURPS is one of my favorite RPG systems, and Old West was such a cool supplement. I have such gamer envy of your experience. I don't know that I've ever listened to a group describing their game and wanted so badly to have played along. This was a delightful show. I'm going to polish up my dice and see if any friends want a session. Bradley Null says, GURPS, love it. Supers was my jam for some obvious reasons. I'm not going to talk about GURPS Supers necessarily because I've never played it uh, on this show, but if uh, you go to Pulp to Pixels podcast, there is a show of Dial H for Gamer where I uh, talk about GURPS Supers with the host over there, my good friend, Dr. G, man of nerdology. Bradley goes on and says, I don't think I've ever read this book. In fact, despite lots of time travel GURPS games, I don't think the Old West had much presence in our games. Probably because Apple Valley, California was almost still in the Old West. So not much of an escape to pretend to be there or from there. And Brian Linton says, GURPS is another system that I've heard about but never picked up. I love the idea behind your Shift World campaign and look forward to future installments. Also, I genuinely hope you guys are able to find a way to wrap that campaign up Sunday. If you do, then please let us know how it goes. Well, Brian, all four players that ever played, and they've never all four played together. We had like, it was always like a group of three. And then when someone moved away, when Bert moved away, we replaced them with someone. Well, all four players are game to finish this campaign in 2021. So it's just a matter of my finding the time and getting my head back wrapped around it. But I've got ideas and they don't want to have it go forever. Uh, like just pick up where we left off, but they do want a resolution. So, I, I still want to have some shifts in there. I still want to use a number of GURPS books before the end, but I've got to figure out an end game and I've started doing that. More to come. Brian goes on. He says, I like your GM tips on GM prep work and striking a balance between open sandbox and railroad track adventures. A related tip I heard is that if your group decides to go completely off script and you're not comfortable improvising an entire session, then it's okay to tell them, if you really want to do that, then I could use a little time to prepare. Do you mind if we hold off on that till our next session? To give credit, I believe I picked that up on WebDM's YouTube channel. As a personal testimony, I recently introduced my daughter to D&D using a pre-made adventure. Of course, as soon as she left the starting village, she decided to take off in a direction I hadn't expected. I am not a great improviser, and it took me a while to regain my footing, but we still had a fun time. So I agree with Siskoid. Don't be afraid to let your players wander off the beaten path. And that is very much an experience you get with 
unseasoned players or people who have, don't have that background. Well, you know, people who were, as teenagers, played a lot of D&D kind of fell into patterns. Or maybe certain types of video gamers. Or when I was a kid, it was like a Commodore 64, Bard's Tale kind of crap. It, it is a genre in itself. Like a Dungeon Delve or whatever is a genre. So the players know the genre. They have more of a chance of following the track almost you know, intuitively or you know, unconsciously. So when you bring in people who don't have that background, you're going to get into situations like this, like with your daughter. Uh, and I've had that happen because I've introduced a lot of people to role-playing. And that means playing with, quote-unquote, rookies who have a different storytelling style and mode of play. And that's where improvisation comes in. Well, thanks for your comment, Brian, and everyone who chimed in. Let me remind you that the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And if you like this content, want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. And let me also remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page, on Twitter where we're FW Podcasts. And you can also follow the show on Spotify in the FW Presents feed. So until the next episode, let's roll. Let's roll.